0: This message by Justin Buzzer, entitled The Adventure of Discipleship, was recorded at Wellspring Church on February 23rd, 2020. The text for this message is First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through Hey, good to be with all of you today. Uh, raise your hand if you were part of Wellspring when you used to meet in San Leandro at that church there. Okay, great. That's the last time I was with you guys, so I haven't preached here for a long time, but I preached back there. Wasn't your service like at 1.30 or something like that? Oh, I remember being so full from lunch and like trying to preach, and all of you were full from lunch. I'm like, how do you preach uh, at that time? And then I've done a men's retreat for you guys. That was a long a long time ago, um, so good to be back with you. I'm going to preach from 1 Thessalonians today. That's the book of the Bible I'm preaching to my church right now. Uh, I was praying about what to preach, and I'm, I'm taking a text from chapter 2. Uh, you can start turning there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 of First thessalonians um, as we 're going through this book at garden city church uh, god 's been on the move through it it 's a book of the Bible that gives us this great vision of discipleship, what it is, and how it 's done, and that 's what we 're going to look at today. Quick background to this book, and you can read more about this on your own in Acts chapter seventeen Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, four men who have been radically transformed by the Gospel of Jesus, they come into the city of Thessalonica, a large Diverse, bustling city in the first century world, a deeply pagan city, multicultural city, um, pluralistic city. Uh, They come in and they begin making disciples. They begin sharing the gospel. They begin sharing their lives with people. And radically different groups of people are transformed by this gospel message. And the first church is formed in the city of Thessalonica. And the The power of God's word is so powerful within the city that a riot breaks out in the city. Uh, People are so furious with these men that they say who have turned the world upside down with the message of Jesus that they have to get kicked out of the city And, and Paul and his friends escape by night out of the city. And it's been just a few months since that escape that three men then write this letter. This letter isn't just written by Paul, if you notice chapter 1, verse 1. It's written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. These three friends write this letter to this young church that they love. They spent really, we, we think, between just three to six months in the city forming this church that had to abruptly leave. And then a few months later, they write this this letter. And it's, uh, it's really rich. Um, when we think of, maybe maybe not you guys, but many people, Many Christians, when they think of discipleship, uh, they immediately hear that word and they think of something kind of uh, kind of stale, uh, kind of boring, kind of like this thing you should do, uh, kind of the image they have in their head is, is it's kind of like sitting in a classroom and that's discipleship. Uh, But that's not the New Testament picture at all. The New New Testament portrait of discipleship is that it is this great adventure that we all ought to desire to be a part of where where anything can happen. It's very dangerous. It's very rewarding uh, where God's spirit is with us and and the world is really getting turned upside down and lives are being transformed. Um, Discipleship is what you want to give your life to on your deathbed. If you really give your life to the biblical picture of discipleship, the greatest stories you're going to tell on your deathbed are going to be stories about being involved in God's adventure of discipleship. Um, Jesus gave his church one mission. What is that mission he gave his church? A little louder. To go and make disciples. That's the one mission we have as a church. That's the mission your church is about on. That's the mission our church is on. The, the way we might state that mission might use some different words, but it's all about making disciples, Um, and so that's what we're going to look at today. Um, Again, the metaphor, the image to have in your head when you think about discipleship is not kind of not like what you're doing right now. It's not sitting in a chair in a classroom just kind of receiving information. It is instead following Jesus, taking the next step to follow Jesus together with a company of friends on this incredible mission where heaven and hell, life and death, eternal destiny is at stake so, would you uh, stand for the reading of God's Word? We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. Uh, What translation do you guys use here? ESV, ESV the especially spiritual version. <laughs> All right. Good. Me too. This is great. Okay, here we go. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know... Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. Everybody say mother. Mother. Taking care of her own children. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this verse, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous. Everybody say affectionately desirous. Being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, or you could translate that as lives, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct, conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father, everybody say father, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, you can be seated. We're going to take this text in three parts today. Uh, We'll look first at what discipleship is. Second, what discipleship is not. And third, how discipleship is done. Uh, So first, what discipleship is uh the way we have been defining discipleship at Garden City Church is from First Thessalonians chapter two verse eight, sharing the gospel and your lives with people. So let's look at let's put this text on the screen. We have a slide here. So we're defining discipleship from chapter two, verse eight, being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready to share the gospel of God in our lives with you. Um so the, the opposite of that verse would be how discipleship is sometimes done by people in churches. The opposite would be so burdened. By a heavy sense of should, we reluctantly shared with you a little bit of self-help advice and a little bit of our hearts because you were a task to us. Sometimes that's how discipleship is is approached. Um, But I want to start with how chapter 2, verse 8 really defines discipleship. It starts by talking about affectionate desire. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke had affectionate desire for these people in the city of Thessalonica. Uh, many Christians should all over themselves all the time. Just so many shoulds, so many duties and desire is not driving their lives. It's a bunch of shoulds. But when you really look at the Bible, we see that God is after the deep motives of our heart. He's after our desires, not merely external obedience or external shoulds. He's after our desires. That's why in the Gospel of John, the first question that Jesus asks his would-be disciples is, what do you want? Um, desire is much more powerful and has a very different impact on people than should, than mere duty. Um, Imagine, uh, how many husbands are in the room? Raise your hand if you're a husband. Okay, great. So this next Friday night, husband, if you come home from a long day of work and a long busy work week and you surprise your wife, you come home, you come through the garage, you ring the doorbell, whatever, knock on the door, and you say to your wife, "Uh, honey, I'm here and I'm taking you on a date tonight. Surprise. She says, why are you doing that? You say, well, because I should. I feel like I should. It's my duty as a husband. I ought to. I think I like, you know, you're, some guy said I ought to do this or should do this. That, that's why. That's a very different reaction versus if you come to your wife and you, and you you show up and you're like, hey, honey, I'm home from work. I'm home early. I'm taking you on a date tonight. i got a sitter for the kids. So I arranged it all. She goes, why are you doing this?" You say, because I want to. Because I love you. Because I desire you. Because I want to be with you. Very different. Desire versus should. Uh, I want to read us a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from a sermon, The Weight of Glory. Uh, A lot of words up there, but powerful quote. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds, I should say finds, not bends, um, my, my bad, our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You guys tracking with this so far? That many times we're pursuing Jesus, or we're going about the Christian life, we're going about discipleship out of duty and should, not out of this deeper place of desire, which is where Jesus wants to meet us. The Greek word here translated as affectionate desire is homorongai, which means great yearning. Have a great yearning for someone or or something. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying we have this great yearning for this diverse group of people. These Jews and these Greeks and these leading women in the city of Thessalonica, they have a great desire for these people. Jesus is after your desires. Jesus wants your deep desires. He wants to tap into your deep desires. Um, he wants to use your desires. And so discipleship should start with desire. Who do you feel affectionate desire for? When you think about the way, you know, the way I want to define discipleship for you here is it's sharing the gospel and your life with people. But, but, but not out of duty. Out of desire. Who do you feel affectionate desire for people will feel if they are just a project to you people will smell that a mile away if you are seeking to disciple a christian into greater maturity or a non-christian into the kingdom and you approach them like a project like a duty like a task people will feel that and that is not the way of jesus at all who do you feel affectionate desire for you just you want to love these people man I, i've got these all these non-christian friends man i i love them I want to see them come into the kingdom, and I'm I'm seeking to disciple them because I love them. I care. I care about them. Affectionate desire. You know, we're praying for a revival in our church and in the Bay Area, um, and and when revival comes, three things tend to happen. Um, people. One of the things is people who think they are Christians actually get saved. They, they thought they were a Christian, and they realize, oh, actually, I've never really repented of my sin and believed the gospel. And, People who think they're Christians get saved. The second thing that happens is sleepy Christians wake up. People who really are sl- are, are saved, but they've not, been, they've not been jumping into this adventure of pursuing Jesus and making disciples, they actually you know, wake up. Um, and the third thing that happens is non-Christians come in. Non-Christians see what, what is happening in the church body, and they come in and they want, to, they want to be a part of this. And what should drive all of that is desire. Desire for God and for His gospel. For for his mission. Uh, let's look at this next phrase in chapter 2, verse 8. Ready to share. We were ready to share. Um, that could be translated as happy to share. Happy to share. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are overflowing with the love of God. They are happy in God and in His gospel and His great gifts. They're just like these fountains overflowing with the love of God. They are these gospel Guys, just contagious with the good news um, of God. They want to they share it. We cannot give what we do not possess. We cannot give to another person what we do not possess, what we are not experiencing ourselves. So a question for you this morning is, what do you possess? Someone spends an hour around you what would they say you are contagious with? I mean, we're seeing the news reports. It's, it's astonishing and scary how fast coronavirus is spreading around. Just this contagious disease that goes viral. But we as God's people can be contagious with the gospel. Contagious with the joy of God. Contagious with the best news in the world. These people experience you in your neighborhood in your community group, discipleship group, in your workplace, in your various spheres of influence. What would they say you are contagious with? Maybe there's a great opportunity for us to do some repenting this morning of, "Oh my gosh, I think people would say I'm contagious with complaining." I think people would say I'm contagious with just being a downer. I I don't know what it might be for you. But let's 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 repent of that. Those of us here who are followers of Jesus, um George Mueller spent some time as a pastor, but his biggest thing was starting an orphanage in England uh, 200-some years ago. He lived a life of radical dependence upon God, and he learned in his life this secret about happiness that drove his ministry. Let me read a quote from him. This is very important. Pay pay attention to this. Uh, According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled condition for the last five and 30 years, 35 years, For the first four years after my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret, pay attention to that, secret of all true effectual service is joy in God. Having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God himself. Do you agree with that? That's a big claim. He is saying the most important business of your day, today, tomorrow, this week, is to make your soul happy in God. There's all these other things going on, but first get yourself to a place of like, man, I'm happy in God and his grace and his many undeserved gifts to me. And from that posture, go about your life and your work. I I, I agree with that. So, So that's the best way I think that we can love other people here in the Bay Area as we come at other people from this place of happiness In God, because happiness is very rare in our in our world and rare in the Bay Area. Um, So so far, what we're seeing from this letter uh, and under this first point is to be about the business of being the church in the Bay Area. We're to be a people who are affectionately desirous of others and we're happy to share. And now what are we happy to share? The first thing he says is the gospel of God the gospel of god um i know you guys love the gospel at wellspring i love your pastor sam we've known each other forever and he talks so fondly of you and i love uh how the gospel is going to work in sam's heart for for decades and how it's worked here in this church um the excitement here is to share the gospel not to share advice but to share the gospel there's a massive difference between advice and the gospel if i tell you today if i, may, hey, I have a big announcement in wellspring and i tell you listen um you know, the building that you guys bought that you're waiting to move into, uh, it's delayed again. Okay. It's it's not gonna be till twenty twenty one that you can move in. There have been some construction things, some city things, some permit things. So just, you know, trust the Lord and be patient. That's advice. And that's probably good advice. Very different reaction to advice than good news if I came to you and said, Hey, big announcement. You can move in next Sunday, like it's done, go in there, like the whole thing's ready, we're ready for you, go in. Very different reaction that we have to advice than good news. What Paul, Silas, and Timothy are ready to share, happy to share, is the gospel. Gospel means good news. And what is the good news? I'll just define, I know you guys know the gospel here, but we can never hear it enough. So let me just define it from uh, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, which you've not been through, but I've been preaching through to my church. We get all these points about the gospel in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. You've been chosen by God. So we've got this new relationship where God has moved towards us. He's taken the initiative. He has chosen us. That's amazing. God chose me. God chose you. Uh, We're loved by God, he says. So not only do we have this new relationship, we have this new identity. uh, Loved by God. He calls the Thessalonians brothers loved by God. If you let anything define you other than the love of God, you're going to be enslaved. This should be the number one thing that defines your identity, that defines who you are as a follower of Jesus. Loved by God. Wellspring, you are loved by God. Oh man, just, just sort of soak in that. Just marinate in that. You're loved by God. He talks about the power uh, and the whole power of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in these believers' lives. You, as a Christian, you have this new power at work in your life. A new relationship, a new identity, a new power. He talks about how you turn from idols to follow the living God. So you've now got this new freedom. You're not enslaved by this bad master. You've got this new freedom of following the one true master of your life, Jesus, who wants to lead you deeper into abundant life. Uh, and then he says how we wait for Jesus' return. So we've got this new future. Jesus has come back and he's going to make everything sad come untrue. He's going to put all injustices to right. And it's that gospel that was proclaimed in chapter 1 that makes the the, the, the narrator in the book of Acts say these men have turned the world upside down. The people in the city are saying they turned the world upside down. I wonder if we are experiencing that in the Bay Area, if we are sufficiently aware of and awake to the power of the gospel. It works in you and it work through you as individuals and as a church so they can turn the Bay Area upside down. Now, he says we're affectionately desirous, happy to share with you the gospel of God and one other thing he says, our own selves, our own selves. And I like to translate this as um, our lives. Uh, this is the Greek word psyche. You hear in the word psychology there, it can mean selves, lives, heart. Um, and churches can tend to err on, on the one side. Some churches can be really good at doctrine, the gospel, good doctrine, biblical doctrine. Other churches can be really good at relationships. Uh, the transforming combination of the New Testament and that we see here in First Thessalonians chapter two verse eight, is to be really good at both doctrine and relationships. Good at sh- the sharing of the gospel and the sharing and the sharing of our lives. Um, this, we we, we want to share gospel and life with people. Uh, we want to have the talk and the walk. We want to have the content and the conduct. This was Jesus's way. This is how Jesus made disciples. This is how Jesus had such a transformative ministry in his three years on earth. He went about teaching, teaching this revolutionary, powerful, freeing, transforming news of the gospel, and he shared his life with people, especially 12 men, especially three of those 12 men. And in many ways, I think just his ministry secret was just all this time with people, taking his disciples on these long walks and Long meals and putting them in uncomfortable situations where God had to show up and, and come through. Sharing of gospel and life. Um, that's so much of how we learn and how we grow. So much is, is caught, not not taught. Um, I want you to, if you're still in First Thessalonians, look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Uh, the writer says... Uh, second part of verse 5, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He's saying you you, you know us. We lived our life with you. We we, we shared the gospel with you. We shared our life with you. You know know our character. You know know who we are. So discipleship is sharing the gospel and your life. Uh, um, A second definition that we use in our church for what discipleship is, but our first primary definition is it's sharing the gospel and your life with people. The second definition is it's transferring truth and love through relationship. Transferring truth and love through relationship with, with other people. Um, and then we see that this verse is bookended by love. It, it says, Because you've become very dear to us. So, at the beginning of the verse, there's this affectionate desire. End of the verse, there's, you've become very dear to us. It's, it's a Greek word, agapatoi. It just means so loved because you're so loved by us. Um, yeah, I don't know what your experience is of, of church. I know so many wonderful things about this, this church, um, but like this, this really can be. If it's not, this can be your experience of church. Just church is this place where you receive this, this desirous happy sharing of the gospel and of people's lives coming at you and where you can contribute that to your church and to your city through affectionate desire, sharing the gospel and sharing your life. And that's how people change. Yes, people do change from, hey, this one-person sermon on the gospel that was so fantastic. Yes, God uses all that. But generally people change as they experience the gospel and someone sharing their life with them. Over over a period of time, I think about uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I, and this really changed a trajectory in my life, a guy, Dan Palmer, who started investing in me. He was about nine years older than me. He started discipling me, investing in me. We were at this um, camp one time during the winter, and I just remember uh, it was a time of singing, and he was just singing his heart out to Jesus. with So much joy and so much passion, and I, I wasn't singing at all. I was just you know, kind of sitting there with my arms like this, just, uh, just a cool ninth grader. Doing it, all my buddies we weren't doing it at all, we we're just sitting there. But for the first time in my life, I grew up with a Christian mom, not a Christian dad. For the first time in my life, I saw a man older than me who I really respected singing his heart out to Jesus. And I thought, oh, maybe real men really sing to Jesus. And he started saying to me, Hey, Justin, why don't you, know, why don't you sing? A little bit. And I started just doing a little bit, sort of, yeah, yeah, you know, like, mouthing a little bit. And, and eventually, I just became the singer to Jesus because I saw a man, this man was sharing the gospel and his life with me. And God can use, God is and God can use you more and more as individuals in this church, as you share the gospel and your life with people. Be about that. So we've had our first point. What is discipleship? What it is? It's, it's sharing the gospel and your life with people, from a motivation of affectionate desire. Second, let's talk about what discipleship is not, because this text tells us a bunch of things that discipleship is not. Um, We've already said it's not that false chapter 2, verse 8, verse, I don't know if we still have that, it's not this, it's not burdened by a heavy sense of should, we reluctantly shared with you a little bit of self-help advice and just a little bit of our hearts because you were a task to us. It's not that, okay? It's not that. Um, Maybe as I go through these two, you can think about which one of these you're the most prone towards. I'll tell you which one of these I'm the most prone towards that discipleship is not. If you're still in chapter two, uh, verse one says it's it's not in vain. Um, Sometimes we can think that our work of discipleship is in vain. Because Satan's against us, and ministry's hard, and we just think, "Oh, this this was worthless. It didn't it, do, it didn't do anything." Um, giving your life to sharing the gospel in your life with people will never be in vain. God's always at work, even when you can't see it. He's always at work. It's always worth it. Uh, verse two: It's not easy. Paul and Silas and the guys say how they suffered. They were shamefully treated at Philippi. You might remember what happened in Philippi, Acts chapter sixteen. That Paul and, and the guys they were uh, they were whipped, they were stripped naked, they were thrown into prison. Were, their feet were fastened into stocks. Uh, they had inc- incredible success with the gospel in that city, but also incredible suffering, and often that tends to go together: success and suffering, in, in ministry. Um, so, so it's not it's not easy. Um, people suffer for what they really believe in. And did our Did our Master suffer? Jesus suffered. And he told us that we would too as we as we follow him. Um, he, he even says there in verse 2, in the midst of much conflict in the city of Thessalonica, we are doing this with you. Um, just expect conflict. If you're doing discipleship, if you're doing church, if you're doing relationships, just expect expect conflict. If this is your first time at Wellspring Church, hey, I welcome you here. Uh, everyone's a sinner here. You're a sinner here. You just made this church kind of a more sinful place and we're glad you're you're here. And there's there's going to be conflict and there's going to be difficulty. and you just, you, just, you just got to expect that. Um, often, in my experience, uh, the great difficulty does not, in my experience, has not come from non-Christians. It's come from other Christians. Sometimes Christians can be really difficult. Sometimes church people can be really difficult. So often that's where the greatest conflict comes. Uh, verse 2, it's not human-powered. He says, We had great boldness in our God. As we were sharing the gospel in our lives with you. So this is not not where we this is not something that we do in our own strength and our own power. We do it through through reliance on God. I think that's where I need to continually repent and grow as I can be tempted to think I've got to do this in my strength. I've got to pastor my church or be about discipleship through my own strength or wisdom, rather than total reliance and dependence upon God's wisdom and God's strength. Verse three, it wasn't driven by bad motives by error or impurity or, or attempt to deceive. Verse four. It wasn't about people pleasing. We, were, we came into your city to please God. We were entrusted by Him. And it says that God tests hearts and we're ultimately accountable uh, to God. And he tests our hearts. What if God gave us a test today about how we are going about the life of the church and the life of discipleship? What motives are driving it? Are we trying to please God? Or are we trying to please people? Uh, verse 5 says there was no flattery or greed in what we did. God's our witness. God is our witness. Uh, Verse 6, we weren't seeking glory for ourselves. We were seeking glory for God. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke could could stand with integrity and say, hey, really, we we were about God's glory. That was driving what we were doing. Uh, Recently, he was meditating on Psalm 115, which begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That's where true freedom and joy is found as believers, when we can really say that. God, we just, want, we just want your glory, your glory here. Uh, verse 6, again, not demanding of privilege. And these guys could have as apostles. They could have come in and said, hey, we're apostles. Uh, so we need you to really serve us and give us this and give us that. Uh, and they didn't do that. Verses 9 through 10 talk about the work they did where they spent time working, doing tent making to not be a burden to anyone. And Paul would vary this. There's some churches where he would come in and not work and just receive from the church. Others where he would. He would depend on the context. So you know, maybe think about which one of those you're the most prone to false ways you go about discipleship, and let's you know, let's repent of that. Um, Going about the life of discipleship is not just being a talker, where you have all the talk down, but you don't have the walk down. It's not not about being a faker, where you know you're you're faking it through your talk and your walk. You're trying to seem like someone you're not. Um, It's not about being a taker. Life of discipleship isn't to try to come in and take from other people. Uh, it's not like being, it's not being a flaker. I'm giving you all these ER words. It's not being a flaker. Maybe millennials in the room, you might be prone to this. Just I'm going to flake out on this because you know, I'm going to change and I'm not going to keep this commitment. It's not uh, being a grumper. Maybe older people in the room, you might be tempted towards this. It's not I'm going to sit back and kind of be a grumper and be grumpy and kind of point out what's wrong. Um, it's about this life that we see from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They were the real deal, the imperfect real deal. These guys weren't perfect, but they were the real deal as they shared the gospel in their lives with people. Um, and God will not bless unless God will not bless unless God will not bless our pursuit of him and our commitment to this way of discipleship. Unless we see these tendencies in ourselves to go about discipleship the wrong way and own those before him and repent of those before him and before one another and pursue him with, with clean, with clean hearts. So, Again, be thinking about what the Holy Spirit might be kind of servicing in your heart today and then let's repent of that. I want to move to this third and final point now, uh, what discipleship looks like. We've seen what discipleship is, we've seen what discipleship is not, and now, now Paul in this text gives us some, some clarity on what discipleship looks like, some imagery for what discipleship looks like. We've already seen that discipleship is not just sort of sit in this classroom thing and just receive information. Instead, it's this adventure of following Jesus and always taking your next step with Jesus. Um, and, and you never know, there's always kind of like this new turn, this new twist, this new place where, where Jesus is taking us. An adventure, by definition, is a journey with an uncertain outcome. And I mean, we know the eternal outcome, but on this earth there's uncertainty in our pursuit of him and, and, and what's going to happen. But he gives us two images here of what discipleship looks like. Uh, how had you say these words. The first is this image of mothering. Mothering and being mothered, let me read verse seven for us again. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Um, I, I have three boys, I have three sons, uh, and I've watched I watched my wife nurse all three of my sons. and that, what, what an image Paul is giving us here from that. Watching my wife do that with three sons and many of you women in this room, you've you've nursed. Um, This is an image of intimacy. It's an image of closeness. It's an image of deep bonding, uh, of safety, of patience. Sometimes nursing can be so terribly inconvenient. And the mother is selfless and inconvenienced and and, and is serving her her children through, through, through nursing. And there's this incredible bond uh, what what an image Paul is giving us of disciple making. The word "gentle" he uses. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm not a very gentle guy. I've so much room to grow. In being gentle, I'm really working on that right now, especially in my parenting and my three my three sons. He says, "Gentle, um, just we we were taking care of you in just this this selfless this way. And imagine imagine people in our city if they received this from us, if they received us sharing the if you will, the breast milk of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, with such tenderness with them, such gentleness with them, such patience, such selflessness with them. You know, this is what we're meant to receive in the church. People kind of playing this mothering kind of role, gentle role with us, and then us giving that to other people. Oh my gosh, I'd want to be a part of a church like that. And then second, he gives us this other image, fathering. And being father. And I love that in the same text, you've got this mothering imagery and this fathering imagery. Uh, Verses 11 and 12. uh, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now this doesn't mean now the father is the opposite of the mother and gentle. Like the mother's gentle and the father's not gentle. That's not what he's going for. Though I do think there is something to be said of we always need to have this balance of being both tough and tender, and generally the, the mothering kind of imagery and that role is going to be more tender and the father role a little more tough. What Paul's referring to is in the in the ancient Near East there in the first century, um, what was typical was the mother's main role was it was done through nursing and through infancy with children. Uh, the father's main role was then on the education. And training of children. And that's what Paul is, is hitting on here. There's three verbs we see in the text exhorted. Uh, and we, I think, in English hear this word exhorted and we think, oh man, that's like laying down the law. Now, that's not what's going on in the Greek here. It's the Greek word parakaleo, kaleo, call, kaleo, and then this prefix para, you hear the word parallel. Right there, it's it's the same word used in Luke chapter 15, Prodigal Sons, where the father goes out to his second son who's who's left the party, doesn't want to throw the party for his younger brother. It's it's to come alongside, think parallel, to come alongside. That's to come alongside and put your arm around someone and and, and encourage them and lead them forward. That's that's the image. Is like a father, we exhort you in that way, we woo you in that way. Second word that's used is encouragement. Oh my gosh, encouragement is so powerful. Um, yes, we need to give hard feedback and give critique. That's all very important. You do that in your jobs. You do that in the church. You do that in your families. That is important. But never underestimate the power of encouragement. Encouragement is so powerful. All the studies show that encouragement is far more powerful for reinforcing and transforming someone's behavior. Have you ever had a day in your life when you felt too encouraged? Any of you? Have you ever felt like, oh, wait, please stop encouraging me. I've received too much encouragement today. No, you've never had that. So don't listen to those people who say, like, oh, I don't encourage them. He's going to get a big head. Or No, man. Go out of your way to just encourage. I've got a personal challenge that I try to pursue in my life is to encourage a minimum of three people a day. Like I'm not going to put my head on the pillow until I've encouraged at least three people in a very specific, life-giving way. I want to really give my life to encouragement. Um, so we, like a father, we exhorted you, kind of wooed you, we persuaded you, we encouraged you. The last word, we charged you. And this is the idea of, uh, like fathers, we showed you what was that we 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 brought an urgency to what we were sharing with you. We were sharing with you what was most critical, what was most uh, 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 most important. Um, So the church ought to be a place where we receive this kind of fathering from one another, and where we give this kind of fathering. And it's all to serve, as the text says, to walk. Using this imagery of walk, adventure, not not sit in the classroom, but to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Again, this is a this is an adventure. God calls and we walk. God speaks, God calls, we walk, we take a next step. We have we have two discipleship questions we ask in our church. Uh, we ask these every week, we ask these all the time. It's part of our culture. First question, what is God saying to you? I think we have these on the screen. What is God saying to you? And the second, what's your next step? What is God saying you, to you today through his word? Through this sermon, through this service, through Christian community, okay, He's, God speaks, and we listen. What's God saying to you? And then, what's your next step? What's your next step? That's central to a culture of discipleship that we listen to God, and then, from a, ultimately, hopefully, a place of desire, gospel-driven, we take that next step of obedience in in following God. And we can just kind of wake up with God each day and be like, Hey, God, okay, what, what do you have next for me? What, what, what do you have next for me today? What does it look like to to follow you um, here's the problem in, if your church is like my church I'm going assume it is here's the problem in this room some of you are not listening some of you are not listening to God maybe you stopped a long time ago okay you're here you're sitting here sure but you're just you're not listening you are tuning out the voice of God. You are quenching the Holy Spirit. God has been speaking to you for a long time through his word, through Christian community, maybe on particular issues in your life, sins in your life, uh, opportunities in your life, and you've just tuned them out and you're not listening. You're ignoring. You're not listening. You're ignoring. And, and so therefore you're not walking you're just sitting. You're, you're just in the same place you've been in for a long time. Months, years. Because you're not listening to the voice of God. You're not taking that next step of following him. Um, think about it like sports. Is, is anyone still sad that the Niners lost? I'm still sad. Yeah, I don't know why. I, that's idolatry probably in my life. But I'm still sad. I mean, think about it like a sports game. You're watching the Niners, you're watching the Warriors, you're watching your kid play, whatever. When you, when you go to a sports game, when you watch the Warriors play, there are two groups of people there in that arena. There are the players and there are the spectators. That's very okay for a sports game. That's not okay for the church. That's not okay for discipleship. In the church, it is not okay for there are to be spectators. There should only be players. People who are in the game contributing knowing their role in the church body, in this adventure of discipleship in the city uh, and, and playing their role not sitting on the sidelines but playing their role and I just want to I just want to encourage you and charge you like a father if you're someone who's on the sidelines, if you're someone who's not been listening to listen to get off the sidelines, take that next step of obedience of Jesus. Do that. Now, um, so let me just give you like two, two closing application points with that. And the first I've basically just said, repent of ways in which you have been on the sidelines. I have ways to repent of that. I'm, I'm not talking to a select few, but like all of you. Where have you been on the sidelines? Where do you need to repent? I, as a pastor of a church, need to repent of ways in which I've been on the sidelines. And times, ways in which I sometimes get caught, too caught up in, oh, I've got to kind of run this organization rather than share the gospel and my life with people and actually make disciples. Repent of being on the sidelines and then play your role in the adventure of discipleship. Just start with these two questions today. What is God saying to you? What's your next step? Today, hey, and you're invited to this if you want, we're doing a seminar at my church tonight at 5.45 on discipleship culture. You're welcome to come if you have nothing to do. We're in San Jose. It's a 30-minute drive. There'll be pizza. Uh, I've written a big discipleship culture guidebook for our church that I'm going to introduce to our church, and we're going to start looking at it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Come to that if you, if you want some ideas, but don't try to go crazy here. Don't try to change the world. A lot of, a lot of young people in my church want to change the world. Every time I hear that, I'm like, don't try to change the world. Um, let me give you some stats on this. I have a slide on this, on changing the world. Uh, before the year 1900, uh, zero books in English mentioned the phrase change the world. 1900 and 1954 books mentioned it. 1950 to 1980, 12 books mentioned it. 1980 to 2000, 101 books mentioned it. Now from 2000 to 2018, over 20,000 books have referenced this call and this phrase to change the world. That's kind of created this generation of people. They're like, I'm going to change the world with my life. But they're not even changing a single life. They're so focused on this big thing, they're not even making an impact with like the people that live in their home or, the, or their roommates or on their campus or, or the person in the cubicle next to them at work. Don't try to change the world. Instead, select small. Focus on just, uh, I'm going to be teaching about a lot of this tonight. Start small. Jesus did that. Jesus started with 12 men. He invested his whole life in them and he changed the world. Just start sharing the gospel and your life with some people, a few focused group of people. And then here's the second second application point. I talked about this earlier. The words of George Mueller who ran the orphanage. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Don't go to work tomorrow. Don't go to school tomorrow until you've gotten your soul happy in the Lord. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, the imagery here is that we'd be a people happy in the Lord, like this overflowing fountain, overflowing with His love, overflowing with His joy, overflowing with His power. We're like, oh man, i got to get out at life today. And through my unique personalities, it's gonna look different in all of our lives, and my unique calling, all of unique callings. I want to be about the business of sharing the gospel and my life with people. And what drives all this is the gospel. First uh, Thessalonians two eight is this overflowing fountain imagery. Um Jesus gives us the power to live out this verse. Think about how Jesus um think about how we see the gospel in this verse. Know this about Jesus. Jesus is affectionately desirous of you. Jesus affectionately desires you. Jesus didn't die on the cross for you because he had to. Because you were a duty to him. Because you were a should. You know your Bibles, John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only son because of great love and affection for you, that Jesus came. He loves you. affectionately desires you. Jesus was happy to share. Excited to share. Happy to share with you the Gospel. He is the Gospel. He is. And the, the, the finished work of Jesus is, is the Gospel. And the ongoing work of Jesus, He's still at work and we can trust Him for His work. And He, he shared His life with you, He shared His very life with you. He laid down His life for you. You're that valuable to Him. He loves you that much because you'd become very dear to Him. Very dear to Him. So my hope and my prayer for you, uh, Wellspring Church, is very similar to my hope and prayer for Garden City Church. The more and more and more we would be a people waking up to the Gospel, waking up to how much God desires us Loves us and is eager to use us. And he can use you and he can use your church in ways that you've never imagined and ways that you've never dreamed as you listen to his voice. And today, just take that next step to follow him. I pray. Living God, we love you and we know you're here. You are with us. Uh, you are in our midst. I pray that as we continue in worship, as we come to the table, um, that your Holy Spirit's presence would be strong in this room. Convict us where you need to convict us. Comfort us where you need to comfort us. And would you speak to us now about that next step we need to take in following you. It's the name of our risen Savior that we pray. Amen.